the nation has seen an intensifying of gun violence in the last 30 years. While overall crime rates continue to plummet, the scary rise of mass shootings in all facets of public life has forced us to ask what we can do to stem this cycle of violence. CCM recently brought forth a series of recommendations at the state capitol as one piece of the puzzle. And today we are joined by Jeremy Stein, Executive Director of Connecticut Against Gun Violence, to talk about what gun violence is and what can be done about it. We'd like to thank our sponsors at Gateway Community College and Housatonic Community College. The Municipal Voice is the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities podcast in collaboration with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Matt Ford. As always, be sure to give us a like and let us know what you're thinking in the comments. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state-local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the consensus views of CCM or member municipal leaders. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. February 1993 is kind of an important date in the founding of your organization, um, 30 years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about Connecticut Against Violence, and how did you start? For instance, who was Carol Layton? Sure. So um, we are an organization that started in 1993, 30 years ago. Um, and our mission is very simple. It's reduce gun violence in the mm -hmm. state of Connecticut. And the way that we started was, you know, not that dissimilar from a lot of other organizations. Um, it was about a couple of people who got together, who saw that there was an injustice in the world and wanted to do something about it. And so in this particular case, 1993, um, we're talking the height of gun violence in Connecticut and around mm -hmm. the country. Um, we, we're seeing gun wars, uh, drug wars. We're mm -hmm. seeing um, gun uh, homicides um, and really the start of this public health crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, and what ended up happening in Bridgeport, in addition to it being uh, just a horrible year for gun violence, a, um, a stray bullet killed a young girl. Mm -hmm. And um, and she was on, she happened to be on a school bus when this happened. And uh, two women uh, got together mm -hmm. in their kitchen and they decided that they wanted to do something more to try to put an end to this senseless gun violence. Mm -hmm. So they created this organization literally in their kitchen. They decided that they wanted to try to advocate for stronger gun laws in Connecticut and around the country. And then they got um, 10 of their other friends and uh, formed uh, Connecticut Against Gun Violence. Mm -hmm. Now we have over 100,000 um, people who help to support and advocate uh, for stronger gun laws. Um, and uh, we've been very successful over, over the last 30 years. So you've grown, it looks like you've grown out of the kitchen, certainly. Certainly grown out of the kitchen. Um, yeah. But but, it, you know, I, I like to tell that story because it does show that, you know, you it, it, anyone is possible of creating change. You know, mm -hmm. it could it could it could just be one person with a drive. It could be two people like our organization with the desire to to make change in, in their world and mm -hmm. their community. And I think it's really important to to note that that it doesn't have to be this huge movement to start. Um, but that you can grow it, um, you can grow these this grassroots idea of of making sure that people are safe in their homes and their communities. Yeah, there's kind of it sounds like a silly question, but I'm going to ask anyway. What is gun violence? You know, it, it's not just one thing; it, it could be many different things. So, how do you define it, and how do you look at it? So, there's many different forms of gun violence. Um, 
and I think, um, you know, when we talk about gun violence as a whole, like we, 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 you know, we often talk about it as if it were one thing, right? But mm-hmm. it really is it's many different things, right? There is certainly um, community level gun violence that we see. This is, these are the shootings that we see mm-hmm. in Hartford and Bridgeport and New Haven and um, shootings that mostly affect black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, on, and in Connecticut, on average, you know, someone is shot um, every day and every other day someone is killed on average in Connecticut. <clears throat> but a large part of that is also suicides. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is typically um, two thirds of all gun violence um, in, in the country and in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And so when we take the number of homicides, typically we can just double that number. And that's the number of people that are taking their own life with a firearm. This is something that's very mm-hmm. intimate for me and my family. My uncle, um, who was uh, a veteran, um, took his own life mm-hmm. with a firearm. Um, so, but in addition to those <clears throat> types of gun violence, we, you know, we, there's also domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a- accidental deaths. Um, uh, and, um, and each one of these types of, of gun violence may have a different solution. The one thing that is consistent throughout, whether we're talking about mass shootings in school mm-hmm. or school shootings, mass shootings, suicide, accidental deaths, the one consistent is it's just too easy to get access to a firearm in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, and you, you might hear, um, you know, people say all the time, well, it's mental health, you know, it's mental yeah. health. These people are committing, this but, but the United States doesn't have any greater mental health problem than any other country mm. in the world, right? What we do have is way more guns than any other country in the world. Yeah. Um, the other, the other, um, thing to note is that people with mental health problems, and there are a lot of people with mental health problems, most people with mental health problems, mm are not going to harm other people. They're actually more likely to be a victim of violence than they mm-hmm. are to be perpetrators. And that's the, the the one thing that we need to make sure that we're always pointing out. We're not um, demonizing people with um, with mental health problems that we're not creating mm-hmm. greater stigma. Um, it is about the guns. It's about mm-hmm. access to firearms. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the old refrain, you know, guns don't don't kill people, people do. But for gun violence to happen, obviously, you need both. You need a gun and the person to pull that trigger. Do you think there's every way to solve the totality of gun violence without looking at both weapons and people? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, that 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 all, that phrase is, is is a ridiculous one because it's mm-hmm. people with guns that kill yeah. people with guns. Right. And also the military and the police and certainly citizens spend a lot of money every year buying guns. And if it wasn't about guns, then what are we really talking about here? Right. So, so, but the idea is that it's not just, it's not just gun manufacturing and ownership. That's the problem. It's not just Mm -hmm. people, you know, that are the problem. It's the fact that people can get access to guns very easily. Now in Connecticut, we have, we've done a fantastic job of creating a lot of life-saving laws Mm-hmm. that try to limit or at least make it reasonable to own a gun, right? Mm-hmm. And so what do we require here? We require permits. Mm-hmm. And in order to get a permit, you have to have a background check. So yep. the police have to do a screening to make sure that you're not a danger to yourself or others, that you don't have an illegal purpose in mind that mm-hmm. owning this gun and you're not going to go out and, and uh, you know, and commit armed robbery the next day um, mm-hmm. or or harm yourself, right? Um, you rec- you have to have training in order to get a gun in Connecticut, um, and you have there's an age restriction. You have to be mm-hmm. 21 to have a handgun, um, or 18 for a long gun. 
Um, and then when you buy a gun, you have to have another background check done. Mm -hmm. So there's there's checks and balances. We also limit what types of guns you have. We mm -hmm. ban assault weapons. We ban high capacity magazines. We require safe storage. So, mm -hmm. you know, the analogy I, I like to draw a lot is um, is with um, motor vehicles. Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that we you know motor vehicle death it, you know up until recently was the leading cause of death mm -hmm. uh, of children you know now it's now it's guns right but yeah. motor vehicles were responsible motor vehicle accidents were responsible for for a lot of deaths in the united states and mm -hmm. so what did we do as a country to make it safer right so we made cars safer we put mm -hmm. airbags in cars we required seat belts to be worn we put mm -hmm. speed limits we made the roads safer um, we, you know, we have uh, police officers that stop and enforce the laws. Yeah. All of these things, um, you know, created a safer world for us to make it that so that the car was less lethal. Mm -hmm. right? And and we train people how to use it. So that same thing should apply to anything else that's dangerous in this world. And it should apply to guns as well. We should regulate it. We should train mm -hmm. people. We should make them as safe as we can while still recognize that these things are weapons. They are made to kill. Like, I mean, the whole purpose of the gun is to kill. Right. Yeah. And so um, so I think that making sure that we don't allow this constitutional right to be the cause of the death of most Americans, you know, I think mm -hmm. it is reasonable to make sure that we have safeguards in place. Let's talk about some of the ways that uh, Connecticut Against Violence has gotten involved in, in some of the issues here. Can you talk about what the Extreme Risk Prevention Order is, uh, which has been noted as one of the first, if not the first, of its kind in the nation? Yeah. So after the Connecticut lottery shooting, um, you know, which, you know, was a mass shooting in Connecticut, disgruntled mm -hmm. employee with mental health problem comes back to his work where he had just been fired and tries and, and kills um um, a lot of people uh, mm. with firearm. And there were reports by the police prior to this happening. There were complaints that this person might pose a threat. And at mm. that time, the police felt that they didn't have the ability to remove the guns from his possession mm -hmm. uh, because he hadn't committed a crime yet. And so after that shooting, what they developed was the the world's first, the country's first, what is now known as extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws, but what we call in Connecticut, the risk warrant mm -hmm. and uh, or the risk protection order as, as it's now called, um, which, which are two separate things, uh, which I'll explain. Um, mm -hmm. But the idea is that in an emergency situation where someone is at imminent risk to harm themselves or others, mm -hmm. uh, a court can issue an emergency order to remove the guns from the possession of somebody that might cause the next mass shooting or mm -hmm. or might you know harm themselves and to be able to get the guns out of the hands of that person um creates um you know cooling down period mm -hmm. it creates a, a way to get that person help it, it creates a way to, to have the police intervene or family members intervene um without you know without um having this you know and making sure that this person doesn't have possession of a firearm which mm -hmm. ultimately could result in the death of a lot of people or themselves mm -hmm. and so this is a law that has been used a lot um it has <clears throat> been studied and it is widely viewed as being one of the most effective gun violence strategies especially to reduce suicide mm -hmm. um and so um 
And so this is also uh, an, a, a law that does have a lot of due process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very similar to the way that the police would um, obtain a search warrant for a house. Okay. Right? So there are safeguards in place. Um, it's not just somebody shows up and says they, they want to remove guns. They have to, um, typically they go to the police. The police there is a process the police have to go through. Right. And then police fill out an affidavit or they appear before a judge. They swear mm-hmm. um, before a judge and they give evidence just like they would in, in a search warrant or an arrest mm-hmm. warrant. And then the judge has to weigh the evidence and decide whether or not there's exigent circumstances, whether it's warranted. And then they will issue an emergency order to remove the guns. Mm-hmm. And then after that's done, uh, the gun owner does have a right to have a hearing. Mm-hmm. I believe it's within 14 days. Um, and then and then there'll be an evidentiary hearing to decide whether or not that order should continue. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, they've removed the guns from an extremely dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's it has been studied. And and for every they say every ten, five to 10 times this is, is utilized, it saves mm-hmm. a life. Yeah. Um, so over the years, it's been used thousands and thousands of times. Um, I think over the last 10 years, it's been used um, close to. Um, since 1999, it's been cl- uh, between 1999 and 2020, it's been used mm-hmm. over 2000 times, which means they've probably saved at least 200 lives as a yeah. result of this. Um, and that's that's a 200 lives is about the same number of people that die every year from suicide by gun. Yeah. So that's really cool that that program seems to be working and, and really saving lives. So you, you said that there's a process for the owners to go in and appeal it. So, like, if they whatever, for instance, maybe what they're going through, they, they, they're doing better or whatever, they could go in and appeal it to maybe get their firearms back eventually? Yeah, absolutely. And there is provisions. Actually, the law was just amended I believe it was last year to be able to allow family members, um, mental health providers, and, and medical providers to be able to petition the court themselves to get a police investigation to be performed. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times the, these are the people that are um, seeing it happen firsthand mm-hmm. They're the doc, you know, doctor may be treating a patient who says they're suicidal or a psychologist may treat one of their patients that says I'm, I'm planning on shooting up a school and what, mm-hmm. what can they do? And certainly the best thing they should do is to go to the police first. But for whatever reason, sometimes people don't feel comfortable going to the police mm-hmm. or maybe the police decided they weren't going to investigate for whatever reason. So it does create another avenue to mm-hmm. allow this law to be utilized once again, still safeguards in place still has constitutional safeguards and due process in place but yes it does provide a provision where the gun owner can petition the court early Mm -hmm. um, and say um you know that they they no longer suffer from you know exited circumstances and they no longer are uh, having problems or they got help or Mm -hmm. um, they're in treatment or whatever it is but yes they can apply to get this um to get their their guns back but you know the reality is that most of the time this is utilized, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time is where the police have to intervene. The gun owners cooperate. I mean, yeah. this, you know, and, the, and and they voluntarily give up their guns in most mm-hmm. cases where the police are intervening. Um, and many of these cases where there is, even though there is a hearing that's guaranteed within 14 days, sometimes that, that hearing is often waived mm-hmm. um, to allow more service to be put in place or to allow the person to get an attorney or, to, you know, so it's not, you know, I, I know the other side likes to complain that there's no due process, but there actually mm-hmm. is many, many um, protections. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing is that um, we want to make sure that people, citizens, family members, children mm-hmm. are protected first. 
Yeah. Right. That that we want to make sure that 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 the next Sandy Hook doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's very very widely utilized um, in Connecticut, but also it is a it is a law that is um, has been passed in many different states. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it largely just, kind of modeled it. after Connecticut's laws? It is modeled after Connecticut's laws, but uh, um, it was really California that kind mm-hmm. of modernized it. Okay. Um, and um, and uh, Connecticut, but Connecticut and Indiana have very similar laws, and 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 they're um, the more modern version of the extreme risk protection order is one mm-hmm. that um, goes through the civil courts, um, okay. whereas Connecticut's is actually a criminal procedure or quasi criminal okay. procedure. So it actually is the state's attorneys that mm-hmm. present the case to the court in cases in Connecticut, um, whereas in other states, it's more of like a civil protective order. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, Connecticut eventually will kind of go towards that other style or does it does ours seem to work for us? Um, I think that where, you know, when they modernized it um, a couple of uh, years ago when mm-hmm. it was um, when the law was expanded to allow um, family members, mm-hmm. physicians and mental health providers, I think that was a way to make it more similar to other states. Kind of but address some of those maybe issues that the newer ones had. Fixed. Exactly. And I think yeah. there's a lot of places where there are, you know, certainly some people just don't want to walk into a police station for whatever mm-hmm. reason. They just, maybe they don't, they've had bad experiences with police or they mm-hmm. don't just trust the, they, they don't trust the police. But for whatever reason, we, we don't want that to be, um, you know, an impediment for people getting mm-hmm. help. Right? We want to make sure that people, get help as quickly as possible. But, you know, Connecticut's risk warrant works very well. And, and mm-hmm. like I said, you know, it, it is, even though um, physicians um, can get access to this, can petition themselves, petition the court directly, mm-hmm. it is ultimately the police that could probably do this quicker, right? They can yeah. navigate through the court system quicker. They can, um, they're certainly the most equipped to remove a gun from a dangerous mm-hmm. situation. Um, and also they can get access to the courts quicker, you know, the public, mm-hmm. you know, if something happens on a weekend, police can get probably get access to a judge mm-hmm. very quickly, whereas you and I aren't going to be able to get hold of yeah. a judge on a Saturday or a Sunday. So ultimately, I do think that because Connecticut system works so well, I I don't think there is a real desire to switch it from a mm-hmm. you know, quasi criminal to a civil process. Um but um, but certainly those, you know, I think it, it state depends on the state, what, what sh- mm-hmm. which you use. I mean, there's advantages for making it civil, there's advantages for making it criminal. Um, um, and I think it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You are listening to The Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. In your time of leadership, um, we've seen, we looked on your website, we see that you've helped with the passage of four gun laws in just two years, uh, three of which uh, took place in 2019 alone. What were those bills and how do you galvanize support for these issues? Yeah, so um, since taking over in this organization, which, you know, and I definitely stand on the shoulders of of many other organ- many other executive directors in this yeah. organization who have done tremendous amount of work getting us where we are today. Um, Ron Pensiero was my predecessor who did incredible work um, before Sandy Hook and, and during Sandy Hook. Um, and since then, and, you know, since 2018, um, there's been about six gun laws that have that have passed. Mm-hmm. And some of those laws um, are uh, safe storage. Um, Ethan's law was one of the laws that we helped pass. Um, and that is, um, you know, really a a 
one of those laws that we're not trying to take guns away from mm-hmm. anybody, you know, like it is about responsible gun ownership, right? Mm-hmm. If your gun isn't on you and you're not using it, especially if you have children in the home, it mm-hmm. should be locked up. You know, and most gun owners do this anyway, but it, mm-hmm. it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be mandated. Um, and then for those people who aren't going to be responsible mm-hmm. um, and that are causing more gun violence, whether it's by leaving guns in cars unattended and then those mm-hmm. cars being broken into um, mm-hmm. or sometimes those cars aren't even being locked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens to those guns? Well, they end up in our cities. Right. And then those guns are being used for the commission during, you know, for commission of crimes. Yeah. And, um, so the idea of these laws are let's make irresponsible gun owners held responsible. Let's make sure that they're held mm-hmm. accountable, especially if they're contributing to more gun violence in our cities or suicide or accidental death, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So people should be held accountable um, if they're not going to be responsible. So safe storage is one of those laws. Um, mm-hmm. It w- had overwhelming bipartisan support, Ethan's law. Um, and, and to, you know, to briefly tell you the story, um, uh, Ethan uh, was a teenager who was over his neighbor's house um, and uh, they um, got access to, uh, the neighbor's father's gun. It was uh-huh. under this, his bed. The ammunition was right next to the gun. It wasn't uh-huh. locked. They were playing with the gun, um, and it and it went off, and Ethan was killed. And uh, and this was in Connecticut. This was in Guilford. This was in Guilford, Connecticut. Um, yeah. And um, Mike and Kristen's song have been very uh, active and very vocal uh, about championing the issue of safe storage in this country, and. Um, and then, you know, this was a bill that had um, almost almost unanimous support. I mean, mm-hmm. across the aisle support for something as simple as safe storage. And um, and now we're looking to expand that um, mm-hmm. more. Um, right now, we have a law that only requires you to um, lock up guns if you have a child in the home or a prohibited person. Mm-hmm. And really, it should be more similar to what Massachusetts has, um, which is uh, if you have a gun, you should keep it locked up, you know, unless it's on you, unless it's in your control, it should be in a safe. There's no reason why if you're going on vacation, um, you know, to Europe and you're, yeah, you're right. It shouldn't be lying on the counter. Um, we also hear all the time, people call us all the time where, Hey, I, I, I'm divorced and my estranged husband lives, you know, across town and my 19 year old son who has mental health problems, um, is visiting his father and the father likes guns and he doesn't lock it up. But I, you know, but my, my child resides with me, you know, mm-hmm. and, but he doesn't, but he visits the father and, the, yeah. and, you know, and so these are situations where, you know, adults, but young adults and maybe some with mental health problems are getting, are having access to firearms. And there's mm-hmm. no reason why in that situation, why that person shouldn't lock up the guns, you know, regardless yeah. of whether a children's in the house whether somebody resides there or not, um, it should people should just get into the practice of locking up their guns when they're not in use. There's really no reason. And, you know, there are plenty of safes right now where you mm-hmm. can use biometric measures, just like your cell phone, mm-hmm. open up a safe in a matter of a second or less than a second. So it can read your fingerprint out. You don't have to remember the combination and put it in. Exactly. And- or it's a series of hand touches, right? You know, and mm-hmm. it's not even numbers. And they do have combinations. But there's really, and there's, many versions of these things they operate by um, magnetic lock with a with a, a ring or mm-hmm. um, now i think they're developing you know rfi technology where it's radio frequency but none you know 
many versions of, of locking up your gun where you can still get very quick access to a firearm if you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, so really isn't uh, something that is going to prevent you from uh, having a gun and, and getting access to it if you need to protect yourself in your home. Mm-hmm. And you can have both. You can have, you know, you can have safe storage and also have access. Now, you don't have to choose one or the other. You can have access to your gun while still keeping it safe and secure. Exactly. And it's a trade-off. Look, if you really want quick access to your gun, the only way to really make sure that you always are going to have quick access is to carry it on your hip and have it loaded at all times, which is ridiculous, right? You know, I mean, and if somebody has to live with that sense of fear all the time, Right. Mm-hmm. Then there, 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 there's something more going on. You've got bigger yeah. problems if you feel like you have to have a gun on you at all times, you know. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, there's other things that you can do to secure your home. Uh, alarm system, having a dog, you know, yeah. like making sure your windows and, and doors are locked, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So so anyway, my, um, safe storage is one of those laws that we pass. We're looking to strengthen it. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the other laws that have passed in the past um, where we, as I said earlier, we strengthened our extreme risk protection order. Um, we uh, um, we also helped to create um, a couple of years ago, the first um, commission on community violence intervention and prevention. And this mm-hmm. is a, um, a grant source at, within DPH um, the, that has been funded with $2.9 million mm-hmm. to invest in community-based organizations that are doing community violence um, intervention, prevention, and mm-hmm. aftercare services in places like Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven. And we felt like this was one of the most important initiatives that, you know, there is a lot of attention on these mass shootings. And sometimes mm-hmm. we forget about the bigger numbers, which is community gun violence and suicide. And that's really mm-hmm. where attention should be spent. And so, you know, one of the best ways to reduce community gun violence is to make sure that we are utilizing evidence-based, community-based organizations mm-hmm. that are like boots on the ground and that are doing work in their community um, to try to prevent the shootings from happening in the first place. I noted in the introduction to the podcast, but there has been a rise in gun violence in the last couple of years here. Um, in one article that we distributed, it's been noted that uh, just in the month of June, we're on pace as a country to get to over 600 mass shootings in the United States again. As an organization, what are some of the causes that you have noticed that led to this increase? Is it, you know, partly tied to the pandemic, economic disparities, ghost guns? What, what do you see as some of the causes? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not a simple answer. I think it's all of what you just said. I think that certainly we we can see that the pandemic played a part in increasing gun violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, just if you look at gun violence as a public health crisis, which is what it is, Mm -hmm. right? And what what has happened over the last couple of years is um, between the ages of 18 and 34, um, guns are the leading cause of death of people, you know, people between the ages of 18 and 34, leading cause of death of children and um, surpassing cancer and and uh, car accidents right now it's guns and we saw a dramatic rise in gun sales over the pandemic also Mm -hmm. Um, we also saw a decrease in services and and a decrease in in employment you know and and so you know what happens is when you've got a public any public health crisis and you increase mental health issues right you know people are 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 dealing with a life and death situation, mm-hmm. right? COVID. And then you remove quality of life 
right? Mm -hmm. So you take, you know, re reduce employment, you know, in increase unemployment, reduce, you know, close community centers, close schools, mm -hmm. um, reduce the number of mental health services available, things like that. Um, you know, you're going to see a, a, a dramatic increase in, in any type of violence. And certainly that, that it, it can be argued that that played a factor in gun violence mm -hmm. as well. I remember, um, living in New York city. Um, I was, uh, I was a lifeguard as a kid. And, mm -hmm. um, and I remember one year they decided for a funding reason that they were going to close a pool in a, uh, in an area where there was a lot of crime, uh, mm -hmm. an area called Park Hill. And, um, and I remember they closed the community pool in that area. And that summer, it was one of the hottest summers. And also mm -hmm. it was one of the most violent summers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I think there, you know, what experts came to determine was they needed to reopen community centers and pools and things like that and give resources to communities. Yeah. Um, you know, you take away these types of things, you're going to increase the chances of any type of violence. And certainly you, if you have a situation where you've already, increased violence and now you're going to add into this powder keg an increase in the purchase of firearms and availability of firearms mm -hmm. and you're and th then you're going to see an increase in gun violence i think it was john hopkins university that said um that studied this years ago and they've continued to study it but um any if you any given area where you add more guns like the idea of more guns um is equal to good more gun death so anytime mm -hmm. there are more guns you're going to see more gun death and um, and so that is and Connecticut is no exception to that. Mm -hmm. Like it just holds holds true across the board pretty much. Yeah. And I think in terms of mass shootings, I think one of the things that certainly contributes to the mass shootings is assault weapons. Mm -hmm. Right. No surprise that when you see these mass shootings, that the weapon of choice is, is an AR-15 or other mm -hmm. type similar weapon. These are weapons that were designed for war. Um, mm -hmm. They were designed off of platforms, some guns that were used in the Korean, you know, in the... Uh, yeah, they, uh, these were never intended for deer hunting or target No, it's, these, it's, were made... these are weapons that were really designed for warfare. Mm -hmm. um, they're, the 223 round is a round that is designed to, to create, um, destroy the human body, yeah. right? And I've, I've seen and heard and met surgeons describe what they have to deal with when they're when they are treating a patient that has been shot yeah. with a 223 round by bullets that come out of an AR15 and it is devastating it is yeah. it is um you know some you you can it, it is hard to save people that have been um, where tissue and bone have been destroyed in such a yeah. way and that is the design of the weapon yeah. so i think look if you want to reduce shootings with AR15s ban assault weapons right yeah. um it, there's it, it is it is the weapon of choice amongst these mass shooters i think uh, everything else i think you have to look at you have to attack it from many different angles and mm -hmm. you have to take a very holistic approach to gun violence it's, one thing alone is not going to um, end gun violence you need yeah. to look at permitting systems that work you have to look at extremist protection orders at work you have to look at educating the public mm -hmm background checks reducing lethality of weapons yeah make sure that you know age is a factor right mm -hmm. that you keep hand the guns out of the hands of people that are most likely to harm themselves yeah right? so getting getting mental health services for vulnerable people like veterans mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um like police officers 
um, and making sure that there's appropriate services for people like that. So, yeah. um, and I think all of these things have to work. It can't just be one thing and the and the and, and not another. In the wake of a lot of this kind of rise in violence over the last few years, uh, both the governor and CCM have kind of come out with appeals uh, for change. But first, let's talk about the state's proposals. Um, what was in there from the governor, and what do you wish was there? I think the governor's done an excellent job um, of looking at this issue and, you know, as I just stated, and kind of taking a holistic approach to this. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a there's a lot in the bill that um, and specifically safe storage is part mm -hmm. of the governor's bill and making sure that we um, that people lock up their guns, regardless of who's in there. Um, the governor also made sure that this um, statewide commission that DPH has um, funding for another year that there mm -hmm. the governor is proposing another $2.9 million of funding, um, ghost gun ban, increasing the ghost mm -hmm. gun ban, um, uh, and tightening up some of these loopholes, um, where I think that, um, so I do, you know, I do, um, applaud the governor for all the work that he and his staff have done to mm -hmm. look at this in a really meaningful way and to look at legislation around the country and what's happening at the national level and to see where we can be stronger as a state mm -hmm. and Connecticut does have strong gun laws. Where we could improve, um, I think two point nine million dollars in funding um, could be could be increased. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a, you know, right now we spend um, over a billion dollars every year on the aftermath of gun violence. Yeah, um, we see other states um, spending a little more or a lot more on gun violence prevention measures. And if we look at you know all the per capita spending and we look at what's being spent around the country, um, uh, it you know it probably makes sense to raise that um, two point nine million dollars to mm. something closer to ten million dollars a year. Um, yeah. The second thing uh, I think um, is probably um, we would like to see the legislature do is um, right now the governor's proposal is ARPA funding and it's only for year one mm -hmm. of the next budget. We would like to see that continue for year two as well. So there should be at least a $2.9 million fund in year two to make mm -hmm. sure that there isn't a funding clip that DPH has the money to, um, uh, to, to get to these organizations, make sure that we are also, you know, studying what we're spending yeah. uh, and, and to make sure that there is, you know, accountability in spending. Mm -hmm. and, and if it's working, we should continue to spend it. If it isn't working, then we have to kind of go back to the drawing board and see what we should be spending. But, you know, this is, yeah. One of the most important things that we should be doing is making sure that we're studying this issue and making sure that these organizations that we are funding, that we're looking at to see whether or not it's effective. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that um, when we may not see results overnight, this may be this is a long term strategy. Yeah. We may not see results for two, three, five years. Um, but uh, I do think that that could be um, increased as well mm -hmm. as making sure that there is funding for, for year two of the budget. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we're um, asking the legislators to do in terms of the ghost gun bill uh, is that, um, you know, we do think that the bill could be a little stronger in that, um, that right now, and this is kind of technical, but the, mm -hmm. the lower receiver, the, the, the kind of the lower part of the gun is not considered a firearm under mm -hmm. federal, federal or state law. It's only okay. really the upper receiver where the serial number is. And that allows a loophole, right? That allows gun parts to be shipped mm -hmm. um, 
into our state where they normally wouldn't be allowed to be shipped and unless you had a so, so you get something to ship to you and it's missing the one upper part that would make it officially a gun and they Correct. put it on that one part and now it isn't but they didn't treat it as such because it didn't have that part is that kind of what, what yeah so like if you have the lower part of the gun and it's called the lower receiver that mm -hmm. under federal law is not considered a firearm Okay. Even though it has the grip, the trigger guard, you know, the lower part of the slide, you know, the and it's really the, easy to I, then put the other part onto that. Exactly. So okay. if you're so so the and and the whole idea is this. It's not it's not so much to say, hey, you can't if you have a gun license and a permit and a background mm -hmm. check that you can't build your own gun. Mm -hmm. It's really saying, look, if we're gonna have all these laws in place in Connecticut, then why shouldn't those same laws apply to building your own gun as they would for buying your own gun. And yeah. so that that's it. So if you, you know, if you're going to require people to have a background check, training, a permit uh, to be, you know, 21 to buy a handgun, then that should also apply to this, to the parts yeah. of the handgun. Right. And so we'll get around is, by shipping it in two boxes instead of one. It, so if you need yeah. a, right, if you need a, um, uh, if you need a license to, if you need a federal firearms license to buy a gun online mm. and to be able to have it shipped to you, then the same laws should apply to any of the parts of that gun, especially the, the lower receiver, like a mm. main part of that gun. And so, look, get a permit, get a background check, go through all, you know, if you want a, a federal firearms license, you can do that. Um, and that will enable you to, to do all of these things. And, and there's no prohibition. There's just more hoops that you might have to jump through. But if, yeah. but until we do that, we're opening up a massive loophole to allow people who can't get a firearm legally, mm -hmm. right? Because that's, that's what's happening right now is that people yeah. who can't get a permit or can't obtain guns legally, whether they're because they're dangerous felons, or they have um, protective orders mm -hmm. or they're abusive spouses or whatever, they're not able to have a gun. And now we're allowing people to go online, buy a, a, an unfinished receiver, build it in their own, own home. And now we're also seeing an industry created by this. We're seeing people set up homemade manufacturing plants in their basement. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it was, I think it was Bethel. I'm not quite sure, but I think uh, it was last year there was, a bust where someone was manufacturing ghost guns in their basement and selling mm -hmm. them, selling them on the illegal market. Right. This is, this is something very easy. We shouldn't allow, yeah. <laughs> you know, if we're going to have all these laws that, that, that govern who can manufacture guns, who can have them, then why, why are we now allowing people to buy the parts to then set up their own shop when they yeah. can't do it? Now, is this a relatively recent problem with the ghost guns? Is this something like a loophole that got figured out after some other laws got passed that people had figured this out as a way to get around newer laws? Or has this been going on for a long time? Um, it's been going on for uh, a while now, but certainly in the last couple of years, it has um, taken on um, more of a problem. And so mm -hmm. back in 2017, um, was kind of the beginning of when the ATF and particularly in California was becoming a problem. They started to see more ghost guns and it probably was even earlier than that. But mm -hmm. back in 2017, the ATF, you know, just give an example of how much this has increased. The ATF, um, the, they traced um, and tracked um, how many ghost guns they've recovered. And, and in 2017, it was about 1600 ghost mm -hmm. guns that they recovered. And in 2021, um, uh, they, um, you know, from 2017 to 2021, that number increased from 1,600 to 19,000. So yeah. 
during that time, the ATF saw an increase of, I think it's like a th- over a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, and even anecdotally, when I'm on a call with New Haven police, Comstat hearings mm-hmm. where they go over every month, you know, what, what gun vi- or what violence looks like in New Haven, mm-hmm. we always hear an increase in the number of ghost guns that they've recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, this is a problem. And yeah. uh, oddly enough, back in 2017, when we, tried to introduce this law and it was actually William Tong, our, our attorney general, that was the head of the judiciary at that time. He was the chair of the judiciary committee. Um, you know, he, he was one of the, one of the first, if not the first person to say like in Connecticut, Hey, this is a problem. Yeah. We need to do something about it and, and introduce the, the ghost gun ban, um, which we helped to pass. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but at that time, nobody, like everybody kind of looked at us like we were crazy, like yeah. a ghost gun. They thought it was like a catchphrase and like, you know, this is, oh, this is ridiculous. It's not a problem here. Like what do you, nobody really had heard of it. They thought, yeah. you know, and now it is a huge problem. Um, It's so much of a problem that this is like one of the main things that the ATF mm-hmm. is focusing on. It's one of the things that Biden administration is focusing yeah. on. And certainly in Connecticut, um, you know, the law enforcement is trying to figure out how to make sure that they, um, are eliminating this newer source of illegal guns. Yeah. And so where are they coming? Like the people that are putting them together and selling them, where are they getting their stuff from? And, and is that kind of how you try to prevent it is to go the manufacturers that are selling the parts to them or how, how do you tackle something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the idea is to, um, I mean, most of these are sold online. Mm-hmm. You can go online now, you can go to like ghostguns.com and you can see for yourself and they'll, They'll send you unfinished receivers. They'll send you all mm-hmm. the parts. And then they'll also send, you know, they'll send you a link for a YouTube video of how to kind of shave off. How some to of put it all together. Yeah. Right. And drill out some of the holes and use a Dremel. And and um, and so um, this is where, you know, this is where people again are, are mostly online or they're mm-hmm. they're um, um, it's not, you know, it's not gun manufacturers that are sending out. Um, ghost guns you know they don't they don't have an interest in doing that you know if ruger is is selling they, their they own guns, money on the, the finish whatever <laughs> exactly yeah so i mean and which is which is interesting because it's 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 odd that the gun manufacturers haven't been more active in trying to prevent ghost guns because it hmm. you know it is it's in their best interest right why why would a company like colt or ruger you know why why wouldn't they want a ghost gun ban i mean it only it's like you know, the, the person are, are, is not wanting the fake purses out there and things like that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't make any sense that they haven't been more active, which sort of sort of speaks of, you know, the the culture of, of guns. Right. And mm-hmm. how tribal this has really become. It's it's about um, it's it's no longer about safety. It's really become this political issue. Right. Mm-hmm. Over politicized. And so. You know, people are now running on whether or not they're good on gun violence or whether they support the NRA. And so um, and it's unfortunate because it really isn't about politics. It shouldn't be politics. It's it's really about safety. It's really about saving lives. Yeah. Um, So at CCM, we recently convened a task force on gun violence, um, which we ultimately focused on kind of repeat offenders, which is a very narrow focus, but one that we think there's a possibility for a big impact. Um, have you come across any of these statistics that repeat offenders, even sometimes uh, on bail, are responsible for a lot of 
the gun violence? Yeah, I mean, it's been something this is and this is not new. This is um, um, this is something that has also been studied and um, mm -hmm. uh, the National Network and uh, John Jay University and, uh, you know, David Kennedy and others um, have um, been studying this for years. And, you know, there's a whole, you know, when, when we talked earlier about different forms of gun violence, well, one of the initiatives to reduce gun violence, especially in our cities, is group um, violence intervention or, you know, or like um, problem, what they call problem oriented policing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's the idea is not to just put a wide net out. It's to be very strategic about where you're going to send the police, how are you going to prosecute cases and mm -hmm. who you're going to target. And so there are initiatives like Project Longevity that have been around for a very long time in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um and they are you know they are group violence oriented and so the idea is that they are targeting um they're focusing um, on certain individuals and certain groups of individuals that mm -hmm. they feel are most responsible for gun violence and the idea is to simultaneously make sure that you're enforcing the laws and enforcing um and, and you know and, and directing enforcement uh, mm -hmm. uh and prosecutions towards those groups that are most likely to cause the violence, but also that are actually causing the violence. Um, but at the same time, offering them services, right? And so offering mm -hmm. them an alternative to say, um, okay, look, we know who you are, we know who you associate with, and we know what you've done. And here's some targeted prosecutions that we've done in the past, and it didn't work so great for them. They're now serving time in yeah. federal penitentiaries. Um, however, organizations like um, Project Longevity, um, you know, they will... Um, also help you to uh they'll offer you services and help you mm -hmm. get your, your driver's license or your cdl or um you know or help you write, write a resume and, and yeah. so the idea is to offer you services that can help better your life so that you don't necessarily have to resort to gun violence so that doesn't seem like the better option the the, the crime or the whatever it is that they're getting involved in exactly and yeah. so the that the approach is to to offer them a different way out, mm -hmm. you know. So, and I think for you know, the, and for gun violence, you know, there are certainly populations of people who perpetrate gun violence where it is a life or death situation. But it is also, uh, you know, this they they this they they don't carry the gun because they woke up one day and said, "I want to carry a gun." They, you mm -hmm. know, people feel like this is necessary to live, yeah. right? However, you know, also in these communities, there, there are a lot of beefs. There are a lot of, there's a lot of gun violence that is just um, kind of tit for tat, right? It's mm -hmm. the, somebody shot my friend and now I have to retaliate. Yeah, I know here in New Haven, there was an organization that actually went by, I believe Ice the Beef was, was kind of their, their thing. And it was an organization looking to kind of quell some of those neighborhood or gang-based sort of issues between people and was... Yeah, and, and I think, you know, organizations like Connecticut Violence Intervention Program, also in New Haven, Letter Jihad runs, you know, this the idea is mm -hmm. to um, to prevent it from happening. To, it's to intervene, right? It's to mm -hmm. intervene with a group, um, whether it's at the hospital, right after the shooting happened, or mm -hmm. in the community to make sure that these, um, you know, that there is a de-escalation, that yeah. there's another way to resort your differences, because it's, we know what what's going to happen, right? What that famous phrase of like, if if everyone resorted to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the whole world would be you know blind, uh, yeah. blind and toothless, right? Yeah. Um, so um, so these organizations, and there's lots of them in Connecticut that mm -hmm. are 
trying to intervene at the community level and a lot of times starting from the hospital where that, you know, right after a shooting happens um, or, you know, or at a funeral, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but, you know, the idea is that um, there certainly is a lot of data out there that um, a lot of gun violence, especially community gun violence is being perpetrated by a a very small number of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's some, you know, similar analogy is, we have a lot of guns in the United States, but there's a lot of guns owned by, you know, a minority of people, you know, and yeah. it's not everyone that has a gun. It's that there are a lot of people that have a lot of guns. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, whatever the approach is, whether we're looking at increased prosecution or making sure that people are held accountable or, you mm-hmm. know, reducing, uh, you know, increasing sentences or truth in sentencing, you know, making sure that people serve whatever sentence the judge issued. Um, yeah. I think that's complicated. Right. And I think but I think that there is definitely room for improvement. Um, What we would like to see and we want to make sure and and we do applaud CCM for putting this in the proposal is that, you know, it's just one of many different solutions. Right. This is just Mm -hmm. one of the one of the um, one of the legs of the stool, if you will. Right. So. And so we did appreciate and um, that CCM did put in their proposal that funding, right, that funding community violence intervention and prevention is still something that has to be a priority, right? It mm-hmm. can't just be. And so so making sure you're tough on crime or prosecution um, isn't the only way. It's mm-hmm. making sure that we're also um, investing in our communities. And so we are grateful and, you know, um, hope that, you know, there's appropriations hearing on the 28th um, uh, tomorrow. And, uh we're hoping we get a great turnout um, tomorrow um, to be able to convince legislators to to fund these mm-hmm. uh, these types of programs and to make sure that we are funding um, yeah. other solutions outside of law enforcement as well. Yeah. So I guess uh, in closing, even at a time when gun violence is is on the rise, seems very high. Are you optimistic about our ability to stem gun violence or at least bring it back to pre-pandemic levels? Are you, are you feeling optimistic about the state of Connecticut? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen dramatic decreases in gun violence um, right after Sandy Hook, after some of the strongest gun laws um, were enacted. We've seen other decreases. Um, We've seen cities like Bridgeport see a a, a decrease in gun violence even throughout the pandemic. And now we're trying to figure out why that is, you know, and and then if we can bottle it, (laughs) you know, we Mm -hmm. will. but um, look, gun violence is very complicated, and it's not um, it's not a one size fits all solution. Um, mm-hmm. We've been working very closely with the city of New Haven to try to create a blueprint for their office of violence prevention. We're going to be mm-hmm. working with the city of Bridgeport to see if we can do something similar. Um, but it is it takes a it takes everyone, all hands on deck, public health experts, police, legislators, community members, right? Because mm-hmm. we can't do this without the community. Um, and to make sure we're studying this like any other public health crisis. But yes, I am extremely optimistic. We know gun laws work. Um, mm-hmm. We know that those states that have the lowest gun death rate also tend to have the strongest gun laws. Mm-hmm. Um, Connecticut has some of the strongest gun laws in the country. And we have, um, I think we're, we're like somewhere between third and fifth lowest gun death rate in the mm-hmm. country. Other similar states that have very strong gun laws like New York and Massachusetts, Massachusetts has the lowest gun death rate in the country and has some of the strongest gun laws. So there's and then, you know, you look at the converse, you look at places like Florida and you look at other states that have very weak 
gun laws and mm-hmm. you know and places like that have a lot of gun death yeah and um and also places like florida saw an increase in mass shootings yeah and so we are very hopeful but and we're grateful in connecticut um you know for organizations like ccm and others and and um and we have a strong governor and we have great legislators that take gun violence seriously and make this a priority and so i think working together you know all different aspects of government the public and researchers like we Mm -hmm. i I am hopeful that we can really end gun violence in connecticut and be a model for the rest of the country as as we've done over the last 30 years great and if someone was at home wanted to learn more or was interested in maybe volunteering or helping out uh how, how would they go about doing that Sure. We have a website, uh, mm-hmm. chb.org. We also, you can go on to our Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I think we have a TikTok. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. Um, you know, and uh, so I, I think the best way is to go on and sign up to receive um, updates. We don't send a lot, but what it does, it gets you connected. It gets you um, connected to know what is happening in your community um, what is happening at the state level, who's running for office, what are some issues you should be paying attention to, um, and then just show up, come out. Um, you know, there's plenty to be done, plenty of different ways that people can get involved. Not everyone wants to come to the Capitol and testify yeah. or march. Um, and then if you're listening, just tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell your husband, like what you heard today. Mm-hmm. Um, be educated, understand what gun violence really means and how we are all really susceptible to it where no one is immune from this unfortunately well jeremy stein with connecticut against gun violence thank you so much for speaking with us today about this important issue yeah matt i really appreciate you having us here and uh let me know if uh is ever anything else we can do for you or ccm and we're grateful to be here we'd like to thank our guest jeremy stein We'd like to thank our sponsors, Gateway Community College and Housatonic Community College. Learn more at gatewayct.edu and housatonic.edu. The Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM and WNHH, 103.5 FM. Kevin Maloney is our executive producer. Christopher Gilson is our producer. Harry Draws is on the boards. And I'm Matt Ford, your host. Be sure to check out our Facebook page and give us a like. And watch out for our CCM chat series on our YouTube page.